Welcome to the Coaching Through Chaos podcast, helping you conquer the chaos in your life. Your host is licensed marriage and family therapist, Dr. Colleen Mullen. Dr. Colleen has been doing what she does for almost two decades. She's a private practice owner, a chaostician, and her work or writing has been featured on countless websites. Listen in as she brings you experts in the psychology of life. They may be New York Times bestseller, key players in their profession, or people who have overcome tremendous obstacles in life and are here to share their story to help you live your best life. Let's get to it. Stay tuned for our next Chaos Crushing guest. Here is your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen. Hi, it's Dr. Colleen, and I want to say welcome to the podcast for my first time listeners and welcome back for those who are sticking with me through this podcasting journey. Today we are definitely looking at gaining a better understanding of a very specific horrific type of chaos that afflicts some people's lives. The topic today is not one that we speak of very often publicly um, and very likely when it is spoken about outside of like the clinical world that like I work in, um, it can get dismissed. The person who talks about it can get disbelieved or even shamed for speaking up. We are talking today about the sexual abuse of boys and the consequences that subsequently linger as they become men. My conversation is with Dr. Kelly Palfi. Before she became a psychologist, she spent many years in an earlier career in law enforcement where her interest in the subject of male sexual abuse was sparked. She was going to tell us a bit about her career. It's actually quite interesting and it has informed her work now as a psychologist. We do cover a lot in this interview. For those unsure about listening, I promise that we don't get graphic about the specifics of the abuse. The conversation is designed to inform and empower not only the survivors, but those who care about them. We cover some studies to discuss the gravity of the problem, how to identify at-risk situations, how to talk with your sons about their bodies and sexual touch, what being abused as a child can do to the attachment style of the grown man, and some great organizations that can help them heal. Now, you may have found this episode because you or someone you love has been a victim of sexual abuse. There may be triggering subjects throughout this conversation. You know, I feel like I should say you can always pause it and come back and listen to the rest of it later if there are things in here that are triggering. For me, after spending about a decade working with boys in the foster system, of whom many were sexually abused, I found Dr. Palfi's book to be a great resource for better understanding the complexity of the problem of male sexual abuse. The book is called Hashtag Men Too. Let's get into the interview right now. Did you know that each time you enter Amazon to shop and you go in through my storefront at amazon.com slash shop slash Dr. Colleen Mullen, a small portion of everything you purchase for 24 hours goes to help support the cost of running this podcast. So go ahead, try it out. And while you're there, you'll also find some of my favorite self-care items along with the Coaching Through Chaos bookshelf where you'll find the books for every guest we've had along the way. Thanks so much for supporting the show. All right. So I'm with Dr. Kelly Palfi, who has written the book, Men to Unspoken Truths About Male Sexual Abuse. Dr. Palfi, thanks for being with me on the Coaching Through Chaos podcast. 
Dr. Mullen, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Kelly, let's talk first about your professional experience. How did you come to write this book? You know, what was your interest in doing this? Yeah, I've got a quite a unique background for a psychologist. Uh, prior to becoming a psychologist, I was an RCMP officer. So that's our Canadian Federal Police Department. Oh. I worked in active duty for 13.5 years and um, I specialized in sex crimes. So for the last four years, I worked in a unit called the Integrated Child Sexual Exploitation Unit. So it's part of the Behavioral Sciences Unit. And so our mandate was um, investigating international-based child sex crimes. Mm -hmm. uh, so we started up the unit, and part of our responsibility was you know, creating warrant templates for other police departments and training other police departments on how to investigate these crimes, right? We'd often get involved with the investigations themselves, and there was obviously a lot of materials that would be seized. So we're talking about distribution and production of child pornographic images mm -hmm. and, um, you know, evidence of sex, sex crimes as well. So we had to be really careful to make sure that we went through all the materials that were seized sort of with a fine-tooth comb. And, you know, I, I literally spent months in an exhibit room reviewing exhibits and during this process, I became very familiar with the grooming techniques that offenders are using, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I got to see firsthand how they prepare their victims, like mentally, physically, emotionally, right? They keep these records for their own review, right? For fantasy material for later. But I mean, one of the things I observed was that boys are victims too. Yeah. But honestly, overwhelmingly, what really got my attention and, and really made me sort of pay attention to men as victims was... Um, I was on a training course in Ottawa and uh, Sheldon Kennedy, he's a pro hockey player. I think he's retired now, but uh -huh. yeah, he played for like the Detroit Red Wings, the Boston Bruins and the Calgary Flames. So this was in 2004 before he'd ever, um, before he'd released his book and he had done some media releases, but he came and gave us a private lecture and I'm telling you, he just uh, touched my heart. He talked about, um, he talked about why he didn't talk about his abuse sooner He'd been being abused by his coach, Graham James, for several years. Oh, wow. And so um, he, he, he was on the same uh, team as Theo Fleury. So they, they were both abused by the same coach. So, yeah, he told us about why he hadn't disclosed his abuse. And his reasons were like, you know, my parents were so proud. Right? I couldn't disappoint them. Um, uh, we were in poverty. My career was literally lifting my family out of poverty. Mm. His coach literally had his career in his hands too, right? He knew he had the skill set to make pro, but, you know, he needed his coach to get him there too, right? So he had all these reasons and it, it just broke my heart, right? One of the things that he said that really caught my attention was that he felt like other parents of the, his teammates knew, oh. but didn't do anything, right? Because mm -hmm. their kids were also becoming pro hockey players, so that absolutely ripped my heart out. And then, and I just, I just recognized like society has failed you, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he talked about living this double life. And that is the piece that I really related to because I, here I was working in major crimes and I'd go home and bawl my eyes out because I was being bullied lots of times. Right. Yeah. And he, you know, he was, so his double life was like, on one hand, he was a victim. But then on the other hand, he was this pro hockey player. Yes. So I, I felt like I related to that very small piece. And it was like, for me, when I heard his lecture, it was like the lights just went on. I started to, I started to see, like I'd worked in corrections and prior to becoming a police lady. And when I was in corrections, I remember thinking like, why are there so many men in prison compared to women? Like, I don't get it. Then all of a sudden it started to make sense. Oh my gosh, there's no room for men in society to be victims, right? Like 
their only option is to turn to drugs and alcohol and that's a slippery slope. Right. So, yeah, so it just, yeah. And then, you know, I eventually left the RCMP largely because of bullying. And I was kind of like, well, what am I going to do with my life now? Right. Yeah. I was already started my master's degree. So, but I wasn't really sure what I was going to specialize in. Right. So, um, yeah, one of my profs started talking about working with male survivors of sexual abuse. And I was just like, oh, I remembered what Sheldon Kennedy said. And I was like, yeah, I could get passionate about that. I could get on board to be an advocate. So that's really how it came about. <laughs> and thank you for doing that. I mean, I've worked with abused um, young boys for many years, probably about a decade here in San Diego, and now work with men and with lots of addictions. And of course, there's a lot of abuse in their in their history. And so it is so needed for for people to work with this population because they are so undercover. And we're going to get into why that is uh, throughout this interview. And one of the things that you talk about in any way that knows me knows that I love numbers. And I was just blown away when in the beginning of the book, you cite some studies that were done. And there was one study in which there was 153 participants who are convicted molesters, and they estimated that they each molested over 150 victims. And I was just blown away that they'd have access to so many kids. Why do you think that is, that there is that kind of prevalent access once somebody breaks that line and becomes a perpetrator that they then seemingly find so many other victims to abuse. If I could just add to this, Colleen, like this research was done in 1987. So this is prior to the internet, right? So how much more access do these guys have now, depending on how you're defining abuse, right? Like I think, you know, distribution of child pornographic images re-abuses the same child, right? But, but as far as like contact offenses, I would say that, you know, why do they have such access would be the extreme effort that they put into it, right? Like mm. high, high levels of effort, of deceptive effort, right? Like these offenders insert themselves into the victim's lives, right? So they are predatory. They will move mountains to get to kids. They will change careers, insert themselves into volunteer positions, pastoral positions, those kinds of things, right? Anywhere where they know they'll have access to children. And it's like they have a radar for vulnerable children, right? I mean, any child needs attention and love, um, you know, and affection, right? But they watch for the children that seem to be lacking in this, and then they will target those children, right? So kids with low self-esteem, kids in need of relationships, maybe the rebellious teen, kids being picked on by their peers, those having problems with their parents, those having problems in school, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, they might uh, use a little self-disclosure and say, oh, I went through that too, right? Like, this is what happened to me. I get you. I see you, right? So they'll do anything to win their victim's affection, but they also will, so that we call this grooming techniques, right? right? But they'll also groom the parent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're at the same time that they're working the child, they're also working the parent, right? Like, you know, hey, I see little Johnny is um, not doing well in school. I happen to teach math. Can I help him with it, right? Like anything, they'll fill any void. They'll learn about their victim and then they'll meet that need, right? Like I say, they'll move mountains. And in doing that, then, you know, th the boys I have found, and I think you probably have too, that like they don't, they don't often register the abuse as abuse. And, and even as men, when they tell their story of their life, I've had several conversations over the, I've been doing this almost 20 years and I've had several conversations where you say, well, oh, well then after that abuse happened, 
was there anything else? And they'll say, oh, I didn't realize that was abuse. And and they really just don't register. Do you think that that is about societal factors? Like, what do you think that's about that it really just kind of doesn't even get lodged in their brain as something that was negative in that way, uh, an abuse? Again, it, it goes back to, oftentimes it goes back to the grooming techniques, which is something that I go over very thoroughly in my book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're very premeditated. The victims typically have a genuine affection for their perpetrators, right? Yeah, there's lots of reasons, right? They, um, first they, you know, the offenders will, will work very hard to make them believe that their, their relationship is just a relationship, that it's not abuse, right? That it's, um, okay that what happened happens, right? Typically, if it's not violent, um, it's often confused as like a coming of age relationship, right? Like a young teenage boy that is groomed by an old, a much older male and it becomes sexual. Absolutely, right? And, and so there's, well, first off, like if I could slow it down just a yes. little bit, like the grooming process is very deliberate and premeditated and progressive, right? So grooming doesn't start off as sexual abuse. It starts off as, you know, hey, let's play football, right? Or let me teach, let me teach you how to subdue your assailants or whatever, right? So they'll introduce this touch, right? They, they introduce touch, they desensitize them to non-sexual touch, and then eventually, um, you know, get them into positions where they're alone with them, then eventually get them into positions where they're, you know, reason to have their shirt off. Hey, you know, we should do this without your shirt on or whatever. And, or they'll spend the night or they have to change their clothes or whatever. They introduce other masculine principles. They um, introduce the idea of secrecy, right? Like they'll treat them as if they're an adult, give them special privileges, maybe driving or alcohol or, you know, swearing or illicit movies, whatever it is. But, you know, then they'll introduce the idea of secrecy that, you know, don't tell your parents, we're both going to be in trouble if you tell your parents kind of thing. And, you know, then then they'll eventually introduce like, what do you know about sex? Or I'm sure you know about masturbation, or they'll leave like pornographic magazines around, you know, all intended to sort of desensitize their victims, right? So, the relationship starts very slowly. It is confused as a friendship, right? Or mm-hmm. sometimes an offender will say, let me show you how to masturbate or, or here's some pictures you masturbate. And then, you know, then, then they, you know, interrupt them when they're in the process of it or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so naturally, you know, then they'll sort of insert themselves into that process, right? Our body's made to enjoy arousal, right? That's what God designed us. Um, but it's very confusing for a victim. So mm-hmm. even though they might be terrified in the beginning, their body, you know, may have, part of it was enjoyable, like the physiological release or the arousal piece was enjoyable. So yeah, it's it's confusing for them. So they don't register it as abuse, right? So there's a lot of that that goes on, but then, and, and the family, as you said, the parents very much are often involved or know of the perpetrator um, and don't realize what's going on. And so when there is like a disclosure to the parent, because there's some confusing feelings or the parent can get confused about what's going on or even think that the kid is out to harm the perpetrator, right? And it leads to what's called secondary trauma. Can you talk to us about what that is? And then, you know, like that happens a lot. It happens a lot with female um, victims. It happens with male victims. Can you talk about how secondary trauma happens then that also is an obstacle to overcome for so many victims? Absolutely. So yeah, secondary trauma is basically something that occurs when a victim does come forward and they're met with like a, an unhelpful response, right? So it could be disbelief, shame, blaming, minimizing, anything like that. It could be done by a parent or maybe by the police, right? So 
oftentimes, you know, like you said, sometimes the parents um, may have uh, well, we call it willful blindness, right? So they may have this sort of minor, minor, minor inkling that this could be true. But the reality of it is, if it was true, it would be so horrible. that It's like there's a physiological response in their brain that just kind of disregards it or minimizes it and said, no, that's not true, right? Like, yeah, it's very common. Unfortunately, when children tell their parents or tell a teacher or something like that, sometimes children won't give full disclosures too, right? They'll give a partial or a cryptic disclosure and then they're met with like a minimization or a blaming attitude like a, or, or just even familial messages that have been sent. Like, you know, some families send the message that, you know, whatever goes wrong in your life is your fault. So even after the abuse, maybe they don't even talk about it, but they're already, they're already sort of re-victimized at the thought of telling their parents, right? You know, secondary trauma is, is very common. And, you know, for example, when um, a victim goes to the police, right? Like, you know, some, unfortunately, some police might still be afraid of uh, what, what would be considered a homosexual crime, even though it's not about homosexuality at all, right? They can be like, you know, their own fear can be projected on the client and, you know, or, or perhaps they're just busy and slightly aggressive rather than compassionate. And, you know, a victim who's already not wanting to relive their trauma would be sort of aware of that sort of awkwardness or uncomfortableness of the police officer as well. And, you know, they could get triggered, they get their own trauma response, they could be dissociating, they could be totally dysregulated, right? The police officer picks up on the fact that there's something wrong, and then they start treating them as if they're making a false report or something, right? So it's just this really yucky cycle that they could both get caught up in, right? And so when this happens, it's, it's extremely traumatic, it can be actually even more damaging than the original abuse. So then they're left with that to overcome as well. Right. And then they grow up to be men that are living with the repercussions of childhood abuse. And I know I do a lot of relationship work and a lot of addiction work, and that entails a lot of times untangling the kind of broken attachment styles that can form of how they attach to other people in relationships that are born out of abusive relationships when they're children. And can you talk about what can happen or develop as far as an attachment style in a relationship for a man who was molested as a child? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this isn't my area of expertise, but I, I do know a little bit about it, right? So, um, basically, the concept is that our early experiences in life, you know, especially if they're traumatic, they sort of become the lens through how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we see other people, right? So whatever our view of the world is based on our childhood kind of comes to taint our ability to be in healthy relationships in the future, right? So we call this an attachment style. Very commonly, if someone has been abused, they would develop you know, one of four attachment styles, first being um, insecure, or anxious, right? So these type of people are, you know, plagued with a highly active sensitivity to any sort of perceived threat, right? So they can do okay in their relationships, they can have healthy relationships, but if there's any sort of threat to that relationship, they kind of go on high alert. So these are the people that need a lot of reassurance, right? Right. And it can be things as small as somebody coming home an hour late from work that can set off that insecurity that says that, like, as you say, a threat to the relationship. It's not always what we think of as threats to relationship. It can be about, can I trust this person? Where were they for that hour? And it could just be stuck in a traffic jam and got lost in the music on the way home, but they make up stories in their mind by the time the person comes home and very insecurely attached. Yeah, absolutely. And that story would be like, oh, he's leaving me or he's cheating on me or she's 
Um, she doesn't love me anymore. She finally sees the real me and she's going to leave. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. And so the second one is like an avoidant attachment. So these people kind of see themselves more as the free spirit type. Um, but really they, they also see relationships sort of as a threat to their independence, right? Like on one hand, they want relationships. They deeply, deeply desire relationships, but they also fear them. Right. So these are the people that kind of work really hard to keep intimacy at a safe distance, right? Like, you know, they might be really lovey over the phone as long as they're a thousand miles away, but when they're close, they're going to be picking fights. So it's in some ways they need a lot of distance to feel safe. And there may be people listening that are relating to those styles and weren't abused. This can come out of other things that happen when we're young as well. It's just a general sense of the different attachment styles. But these are a couple of the, the ones that really kind of show up when people in particular have had uh, what we would call attachment injuries when they were young that said they can't trust someone who's close to them or they have to have relationships in secrecy because there's a threat of something you know being held over them. So these are just a couple of the primary styles that can happen after an attachment injury when they're young. Yeah. So then the next one would be disorganized, right? So that's sort of a combination of the insecure and the avoidant, as I understand it. There, there's a lot of different definitions of these, unfortunately they have sort of a negative view of themselves and others. So they might see other people as capable of loving them, capable of being in healthy relationships. But again, this underlying idea that if you got to really know me, you wouldn't love me, you'd you'd throw me out, right? Mm -hmm. They don't believe they deserve healthy relationships. And they might, you know, again, they want relationships, but they're going to push people away because they're scared of getting hurt. And when we hear all of this, we can see how because men don't do a lot of talking about this and women are the ones that kind of show up more so in the research for who goes to therapy for these kind of things, you know, we can see how someone may develop a substance abuse problem, right? Where they just start numbing themselves through the years, you know, or when things get too scary in a relationship, they get too close and they feel threatened, they start numbing themselves. But it usually starts very young when they start realizing maybe what's happened to them or how they think they are perceived. Because a lot of times victims feel like you can see it right across their forehead that they are a victim, that this has happened to them. And God forbid they they enjoyed it in some way They and are so confused, they think there's something really terribly wrong with them. And on that end, you know, I know um, the parent, when they find out and, and know that this happened, they can feel so absolutely guilty and can feel like, oh gosh, I, I should have seen it. I shouldn't have let him go with that person. Or, you know, when they were doing the extra coaching, I should have known something was up. You know, these men, as you said, they are so skilled and deliberate and will, as you said, move mountains. They will get new careers in order to have access to kids. So what do you want to say to parents? I mean, obviously it's not their fault. And a lot of times you really can't see it, but if they were, if they're listening and going, gosh, I suspected something, but how would they know? Are there any telltale signs that they could look for that their son may be being groomed or being victimized? Colleen, you just said something really key, right? Like you said, they may suspect. So first, yes, there are some signs and I will mention those. But I think first off, if you ever suspect, do not minimize it. Do not push that aside. Dig in, investigate, ask questions, right? Right. I mean, again, that concept of willful blindness, I think it's really important that people understand that we are hardwired to disregard information that would be too awful, right? We are hardwired to give people the benefit of the doubt. And 
of course, you've got an offender working really hard to convince them that there's nothing wrong. So, but I would say, yes, first off, if you have that gut instinct, they say they're, you know, we're learning that there are a lot of neuroceptors in our gut, perhaps even more than our brain. And oftentimes our guts can perceive things far more quickly than our brain ever can. So definitely pay attention to those gut instincts. Yeah, as far as actual, actual things to watch for in children, yeah. First off, significant behavioral changes. That's a huge indicator, right? So like, you know, one of the two of the boys, I think in my research said that, you know, they were God fearing, going to church, all this kind of stuff. Then all of a sudden they started taking an interest in dark poetry, isolating drugs, alcohol, promiscuity, right? Like that's a significant behavior change. So I'm not just talking about like, you know, with the teen that starts to hide out in the room more and more. I'm talking significant behavior changes, right? These are obviously huge cues, but really any problems, right? Like if your child's doing well in school and then all of a sudden starts to not do well, can't pay attention, starts having nightmares, isn't sleeping, starts to really isolate, right? Any of those behaviors, I think, pay attention, ask questions, right? They're it's, you know, it's worth investigating, right? Absolutely. And I love how you said that just a second ago, but we're hardwired to disregard information that would be too awful. We just don't, we don't want to register that. And, and on that end, right, we don't have a suspicion that something terrible like that is going on unless something's triggered us a little bit, right? So as you said, trust the gut. And it doesn't mean it's happening, but it means it's worth at least asking some questions, looking around, seeing what may or may not be going on. Absolutely. I mean, we know that the bulk of perpetration is not stranger danger. It's people in our own circle, right? So, you know, if something seems too good to be true, perhaps it is, right? Yes. And, you know, and for the parent too, it's crushing for them to realize that somebody that they trusted and allowed into their lives is someone who absolutely did something devastating to their child. And so the parent has a lot of reasons and a lot of their own emotional obstacles that would work against them from wanting to see that. So, this is an action that just like many things that happen when people are perpetrated on in different ways, it has more than just the one victim. There is always other victims of these perpetrators. Colleen, if I could just add to that, you know, I mean, to maybe to help parents feel less guilt as you're saying they feel guilt, right? Professionals are missing this too, right? Yes. Like when I first, I'm sure you see this, right? Oh, when, yeah. I first, when I first started teaching about male survivors of sexual abuse, I had two of my professors at U of A come to me and say, holy cow, I gotta, I gotta ask a few more questions, right? Like maybe this is what's going on, right? Like yeah. research yeah. shows that professionals typically do not recognize boys as victims near as much. They don't even consider boys as victims near as much as they would a female, right? Look at Penn State and what had happened with the coach at Penn State uh, all those years ago. I mean, my goodness, right? He's out in the public eye, and there are so many people like that. Um, then, of course, we have all the church reportings and things like that. So they can be anywhere. It's and, and crim criminals, perpetrators—they are they're everywhere, and we don't—they don't look any different than us on any given day. And that's why it is so hard to see it because we think that they look like the dark, old, scary man sitting in the corner, you know, waiting for a boy to grab and throw in the bush. And that's not what it is at all. <laughs> I mean, those exist, but that's not the primary ones that get so much access. 
And Colleen, even when we do see it, we're a lot less likely to label it as abuse when it's a boy victim, right? Or a male mm -hmm. victim. Hollywood has made millions off these quote unquote coming of age movies, right? But when you flip the sex of the uh, perpetrator victim and make it a young female girl and an older man, it's just, it's considered disgusting, right? But why is it okay when it's a boy? Yeah. Oh, man, gets me fired up. And then there's, right, I was just going to say that what are some of these obstacles that men face in seeking help? Because women do present for trauma, for molestation, for getting abused as children. They come in, they'll say, hey, I need to deal with this. I know it's I know it's affecting me. And men are more likely to present for something else and somehow get around to that. And I, I know someone who even sought treatment for years from somebody and then had a side conversation with, with another therapist and said, do you think I should tell my doctor about this? Of course, because it, it affects so much. And they knew it was affecting them. And they thought, well, if I just kind of give this is the symptoms that I'm having, they can just treat that. And they weren't getting at the root of what was happening. So I think there's a lot of stories like that out there. What are some of the obstacles that men face in, in going for, for therapy for this or getting treatment? Yes, men face a lot of barriers, but they have been facing these barriers since they were boys too, right? Mm -hmm. Like we know that disclosure is a process, right? It's something that they consider their whole lives. They weigh the pros and cons of it, right? So this has been sort of a secret that they've been keeping for years and years and years, right? You know, initially when a boy goes through abuse, um, they don't ha understand the consequences of it, right? Like, yes, let's say maybe they did enjoy certain aspects of their relationship or even the physiological part, right? Then when they become aware of sexual um, issues, right? They recognize that what happened was abuse or they are confused about it, right? So they're struggling with that shame, that guilt perhaps even, right? So that's something that they, you know, that they may choose to keep quiet about because they're not really even sure what happened. Yeah, so there's a lot of very deep-rooted, complex barriers. This this was actually what my research was about, which was, it was like, my doctoral research was about why don't boys and men talk about this, which is all the basis of my book, Men Too. Uh-huh. Trauma, too, right? So right off the bat, I'd say trauma, right? Like, uh, physiological barriers, right? Dissociation, memory loss, um, being triggered, right? Like, so typically, boys don't they base a lot of their self-worth on their ability to maintain control, right? So when a child is dysregulated, they feel out of control. They don't want to tell people about that, right? So mm -hmm. it makes them feel shamed, right? So um, their own trauma responses are a huge barrier. Cognitively, they're thinking, well, what will people think? What will they say? Will they believe me, right? Will I be in trouble, right? What if it's my parent, right? There's like, who's going to pay for college if I report on my parent or things could be worse if I get into foster care or what happens if this breaks up the family, right? So these are, you know, this is initially going on as, as a boy, right? And then relationally, it's like, will I lose my friends if they find out I was a victim? Will they think I'm homosexual? Will they think I'm going to be a perpetrator, right? Mm -hmm. A big one that really um, kind of broke my heart when I was doing my research was can my parents handle this, right? Like mom and dad already have enough on their plate. If I tell them about this, this is going to break them. So they say nothing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I've got one of my participants in my, in my research, he said, I will keep my perpetrator a secret till my grandma's dead, basically, right? Yes. Emotional, right? Like sometimes they, you know, they know that they're functioning at whatever level in society emotionally because they've kept this all at bay and they think, am I going to fall apart, right? As an adult male, again, a lot of these things that we've talked about, right? Like, what is society, you know, there's still, you know, a lot of ignorance out there about male abuse, right? Like, do, if I was a victim, does that mean I'm going to be a perpetrator? No, 
less than 10% of victims turn into being perpetrators, right? But there's still this huge fear about that. Yes. Lack of training for psychologists and counselors, right? Like I said, a lot of these people are not recognizing that boys and men might be victims too and not asking those tough questions, right? The research shows that boys and men still need prompting, right? To sometimes to, to, to disclose, Oh, right? absolutely. And like we said earlier, even to recognize that it was something that is seen as abuse, you know, especially if it happened in the teenage years and they think that they somehow were consenting to this adult relationship with somebody. Like, and maybe they've tried a partial disclosure by telling their friends or somebody, hey, you know, my teacher abused me and their response is, oh, she's hot. I wish that happened to me, right? Like, no, you don't. (laughs) It's, you know, it's very different to have a fantasy for an authority figure than, than actually being abused by your teacher, right? So when this kind of response happens, they start to rewrite their own abuse histories, right? Like, oh, oh, right, maybe I did enjoy it. Oh, you know, they kind of forget that they were traumatized and, and remember, you know, the good parts or, or just minimize their own abuse, right? Mm-hmm. It is very confusing. And part of that is, you know, the reason that they don't talk about it, because they aren't really sure how they feel about it, right? Yeah. Society is like reluctant to label males as victims, right? Like, you know, real men are not abused. Real men are not victims. They're providers there. <laughs> well, right. And even in saying that and them coming out and saying I was victimized, right, for them to label themselves as a victim. And yes, we know like we can, uh, they're survivors, it's more empowering and all that stuff. But the word is still that they were victimized. And so for them to even come out, it can almost be a hit to their masculinity as well, you know, and make them weaker and whatever their thoughts are about their manhood to admit that something like that happened and that it was an abuse of some kind, and they were victimized. Somehow they think that they could have stopped it. And they, we know that they can't when they're, when they're kids, you, you just, you can't stop it when it's, when you're a kid. And Colleen, you know, I, what you just said about like men not wanting to be viewed as less than masculine or whatever, which is so true. I love the way Brene Brown addresses this, you know, she says that, you know, when we, the definition of courage is sort of the, our ability to be vulnerable, right? The depth mm-hmm. of our courage is also the depth of our ability to be vulnerable. I just love that. And I just, I so see that with my clients, right? Like I predominantly work with police officers because I was a first responder, right? And I just seem to get swamped with them, which is wonderful. But, you know, like getting these guys, you know, these macho guys that are on the ERT team and stuff to access that vulnerable place where they need to, to process their traumas is tough because they have these ideals about what masculinity means, right? But I can honestly say that when they do, they feel so much better. They feel stronger after, right? Like, hey, I don't have to hide from this. This doesn't. This isn't a monster in my closet. This is something I can handle, right? Right. It's freeing. It's empowering. It's unburdening. It does so much to change how they feel about themselves, how they act in their relationships, how they orient themselves in the world. And it definitely does not make them any less masculine. So... With parents, how can we, how would you recommend that parents talk to their young boys about the risks of being abused? Well, first off, I would, you know, I would start very young and be very specific. Uh, start, you know, be, give, give the genital names, penis and vagina, right? Like, I encourage parents, control your own shame, control your own fear. Like, fear is learned, shame is learned. Well, I guess we're born with fear, sorry, but, you know, shame is learned, right? So, just put your own um, emotions aside and, and children want to learn, teach them, right? Teach them about grooming techniques, you know, teach them that some people might try to touch you, right? And again, we know what that's about, but they don't. Three or four of the 
men that I interviewed said, if only I had known about sexual abuse, I didn't even know it existed. If I had known it existed, I would have told somebody, right? You know, teach them that there are unhealthy people out there that might try to touch you and that it's okay to say no and that it might be hard to say no, but you still say no and then you come tell mom or dad or another trusted person, right? Also, I think it's it's just as much what you do teach them as what you don't teach them, right? So don't teach them things like, we don't talk about sex or I can't handle this or leave it up to God, that kind of thing, right? Don't send those messages that they can't come to you. You want to send the message that no matter what happens, they can talk to you, that they won't be in trouble, that you're not going to shame them or blame them. I think it's just really important that you teach them, trust your instincts. If something doesn't feel right, say no. Where can men turn for help? Unfortunately, nowhere near as many agencies for men as there is women, but there are some really great ones out there. In the United States, there's an agency called One in Six, so the number one in six. Um, they have great like forums, lots of resources, videos. Um, um, I believe they've got a link to trained therapists in the U.S. There's another one called MaleSurvivor.org. Same kind of concept. Um, lots of forums, support. Um, um, in Canada, we have a few. Uh, in British Columbia, there's the BC Society for Male Survivors of Sexual Abuse. In Ottawa, there's one called menandhealing.ca. And then here in Alberta, there's the Canadian Centre for Male Survivors of Sexual Abuse. So um, those are some of the ones that I'm, that I'm familiar with. But having said that, all of those agencies have other resources that can link to your area. So Great. And we'll put links to those agencies in the show notes for this episode. I want to thank you, Dr. Kelly Palfi, for being with me on the Coaching Through Chaos podcast. And where can the listener uh, find you? Uh, well, I'm, I'm in Edmonton, Peaks and Valleys, psychology.com. My book, it's available on Amazon, um, Audible, e- eBooks, um, all kinds of resources. But uh, yeah, I'm in Edmonton, Alberta, Peaks and Valleys, psychology. And we will also add the book to the Coaching Through Chaos bookshelf on Amazon. So it, you just follow the show notes and get yourself over there and get a copy of it if you're interested in learning more on this topic. So thank you so much for being with me on the show today. Thank you. That was a heavy duty subject. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or want further assistance or if someone you love is a survivor of male sexual abuse and you would like to get more information, I invite you to check out the resources listed in the show notes and you can always reach out to Dr. Palfi directly at her website, also listed in the show notes. Okay, as we head out of this episode, I want to let you know about who is coming up next. The next episode features some friends of mine I met a couple of years ago at a seminar. They are the family that runs Absolute Flex Appeal in Rockland, California. There are three generations of them who co-own a popular and growing gym in Northern California, but they are not just a family that works out together. No, they all decided to go in on a beautiful property where they now all live, also under the same roof. And then they go to work at the same place to work every day. You know, I am fascinated by that because, you know, I did not come from the type of family where we want to hang around with each other all the time. So I am just curious to ask them all sorts of questions about how they come together in tough times, how they talk about money as a business owning family, and how they set healthy time away from talking about the business when they're all at home together. 
and I'll probably intrude and ask a few other questions that they didn't expect either. And on top of it, there's a lot of cool accomplishments going on within this family as they grow in their identity as business owners and gym owners and leaders in their community. And I think you'll just really enjoy hearing them talk about their experience of living and breathing family and work all together. And before I go, I want to make sure that I thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate that in all the chaos that we have going on in the world that you have taken the time to listen to this episode. I do look forward to having you join me next time too. And before I really get going, I need to thank my editor, Steve Cosio at Podcast Mansfield. I love being able to keep the podcast going and growing without having to do the editing. All right, I have one last announcement about the show. So if you've been sticking with me, you know the last couple of episodes I mentioned the Patreon page launching. So October 1st was the actual launch date of the Patreon page for the podcast. So you can go to patreon.com slash coaching through chaos podcast, where you can find four levels of membership. Now, I'm not going overboard and trying to oversell you anything. I wanted to give you value. So I'm going to say whether you go with the CTC podcast lovers, chaos crushers, the chaos crushing pro level, or the chaos crushing expert, you're going to get your money's worth. However, disclaimer is it's non-refundable. So think about it before you sign up. (laughs) Anyway, um, your best value though is going to be at the $9 level every month at the Chaos Crushers level. That's level two. At that level, you get an ebook I wrote, Five Ways to Live a Happier, Healthier Life. You will also get a shout out on the show. And the real value comes in that you are going to access three exclusive recordings each month just for you for being this Patreon member. And these recordings are going to be self-help recordings and they're going to cover all sorts of subject matter. Some of them you have asked me to do. Some of them are just things that come up quite frequently with my clients. So I figure I'm going to share them with you so that it can help you as we are trying to do here, conquer the chaos that you have in your life, right? And conquering, it doesn't mean it goes away. It just means that you know what to do when it shows up again, because our chaos always comes back around. So we cover relationships. We cover how to stay in a happy one, how to argue with your partner, how to date and find a healthy partner for you, right? Because everybody can go out and find a partner, but can we all go out and find a healthy one? And we will also cover having difficult family members, how to manage that. We'll do managing anxiety, stress, coping with depression, how to think about changing careers, how to know if you should change careers, how to know how to get out of a relationship, how to know when to stay in a relationship. We are going to cover so much. I should say, I'm going to cover so much and I'm going to hope that you enjoy learn and feel empowered by these recordings. So you do get a lot more if you join me at levels three and four, and those end with even um, a 20 minute coaching call with me every month. So go to patreon.com slash coaching through chaos podcast and see what I've put together for you. You know, we're in a tough situation in the world right now. 
And if you can spare anything at all to help support something that you are enjoying, I want you to have something for that contribution besides me being forever grateful. Anyway, that's what we've got going on. So I look forward to having you join me at the next episode. And I hope that within all the chaos that we are living, you have a place to find some calm. Okay, take care.